0: Hey there everyone, and welcome to the first episode of D&D with the Weed Cats, and our first campaign, Ride into Hell or High Water. I am your host and resident dungeon master, Kevin, and I'm going to be telling you a little bit about the game, the players, and their respective characters. So without further ado, let's get into it. I also wanted to throw out a quick disclaimer. Uh, viewer discretion is advised. There will be a lot of talks of blood, and gore and murder a lot of sensitive topics as well as a lot of raunchy and dirty humor including that of sexual organs genitalia um if you do not like to hear about that kind of stuff or you do not want your child slash teen listening to that kind of talk uh i would advise you to click off of this podcast there is going to be a lot of that and so i just wanted to give a quick warning just to let you know Firstly, uh, a little backstory, as this first episode will be a little bit weird. We started this campaign back in early 2022, and we played nine sessions before we decided that we were having too much fun and we wanted to record it. And then, right before we started, my laptop decided to die, and I lost almost everything. At the beginning of 2023, I was able to get a brand new PC, and so instead of starting the entire campaign over from scratch, we decided to give a little rundown on the events that have transpired since the beginning. Uh, But anything that is of great importance story-wise, I'm going to give a rundown on the beginning of the first official episode, and that's where we're going to be getting back into playing. Now, before we get into the rulebook and everything like that, I wanted to give you guys a little information about the world. So, uh, the world is set 200 years after the nuclear war uh, that left the world in shambles, The former U.S. was left a desert wasteland, and the people live in small communities scattered across the southeast, now known as the Meridional Coalition, or the MC. Each town has a specific resource that helps keep everyone alive, and they have recruited the help of caravans to ride through the wasteland, which they have affectionately called the Wastes, and deliver these goods. Uh, The caravans are groups of misfits and outcasts who came together, surviving the horrors of the Wastes and everything in it. Uh, The members are called transients, and the leaders are known as vagabonds. Unbeknownst to the people of this world, a rift has begun opening, linking their world to another. And this other world is hell-bent on destroying planet Earth and everything that lives on it. Now, there are eight main towns in the MC. There's Nirvana, distributor of lumber and woodworking. And while they're an average-sized city, it's also home to the biggest underground drug trade in the MC. There's Jericho, uh, the distributor of fresh water and seafood. Living on the New Atlantic has its perks, but it also can make you a target. There's the Skids, distributor of metals and ore. Uh, This small mining town has been reeling since a bad trade deal and they still haven't recovered. Peril is the distributor of livestock, hide, meats, and animal byproducts. Their entire town is basically a giant ranch with non-natural pastures that took decades to cultivate. The town of Applewood is the leading distributor of fruits, vegetables, spices, and apothecary. They set up their town in the former swampland, and it's the only place in the MC with natural grass and arable farmland, which also makes it a great place to grow herbs for medicinal brews. Broad Hollow is the distributor of textiles and fabrics. They have the leading export in comfort, fashion, and style, and they know it. But just remember, the word gets around in a small town. Mountain Ridge is known for their uh, distribution of medical equipment and pharmaceuticals. They are known for charging exuberant prices and are one of the only two so-called self-sustaining cities. Most people who live here are too smart for their own good. And finally, we have Opulence, distributor of cybernetics, weapons, and life-saving procedures. Opulence was once the city of Des Moines, Iowa, and most of the people that work here are either in the medical field or the assembly lines. It's one of the only cities left untouched by the war, and they were able to keep the factories running as well as all of the nuclear power plants in the MC. There's also a small group that lives far away from the MC, and they have no contact with any of the cities. They are known as the Freestags, and this group of individuals are mostly made up of Native Americans. The MC has not been too kind to them, so they tend to stay away. The Freestags reside in three separate factions, the Broken Spear, the blind bears, and the ancient hand. Now that the world building's done, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about the rule set and what we're going to be doing. Uh, so we're not going to be playing traditional 5e for this campaign, we're playing Monster of the Week, authored by Michael Sands, though we have homebrewed a few mechanics. The core of Monster of the Week is all about fighting a new monster or monsters every arc. And I would highly recommend it, as even a player with absolutely no knowledge of D&D can pick it up in a matter of minutes. You only have to roll a d12, and the dungeon master never rolls. Everything else is complete storytelling. Now, to give you guys a little bit of insight about Monster of the Week and its mechanics, um, instead of stats like strength and constitution, uh, it has ratings. And these ratings are cool, charm, sharp, tough, and weird. And they all have a maximum modifier of plus three. The modifiers will add to any roll you make pertaining to that rating. And uh, there are basic moves that any of the hunters can use at any time, with uh, class moves that are specifically for certain classes. Uh, the basic moves are for charm, manipulate someone. For cool, act under pressure and help out. For sharp, investigate a mystery and read a bad situation. For tough, kick some ass and protect someone. And for weird, use magic. I'm not going to go into like the specifics of the mechanics, because they're pretty self-explanatory, but I will be explaining them during the sessions. And now to the homebrews. Um, I've homebrewed a few moves and mechanics, the first one being a stealth roll, which is used in the parties having to sneak around. Uh, the first aid roll, which is used for healing yourself and other hunters. There is an actual like first aid mechanic in Monster of the Week, but we found it to be easier to just have... A separate role for it, which I'll again we'll be explaining these inside of the sessions themselves. We also have good old drugs. Now drugs offer a slight advantage to some moves and a slight disadvantage to others at the same time. The more drugs that you take at the same time, the higher chance you have to overdose, especially if it's the same type of drug. And lastly there's the cybernetics. And these cybernetics are frequently used throughout the MC. And they help you gain either an advantage or they can be used to save lives. Our hunter's cybernetics will offer them plus one to certain moves that are pertaining to their character. And uh, they will only be able to use them three times a day. And they can be damaged to which they become unusable until they have them repaired. I'll also be posting like a Google Drive with these rules and moves and all of the homebrew aspects. So everybody can get a better understanding on how uh, the mechanics work. Now that all the explaining is out of the way, let me introduce you to the party. Uh, Our party takes the place of a caravan, known throughout the MC as the Renegades. There are a few NPCs in the caravan that are played by me. So uh, those are Ernest Flynn, who's the vagabond and one of the best riders in the MC. He may be old and scarred, but he still cares deeply about those he loves. There's Harvey O'Donnell, Flynn's right-hand man, and he can be a little annoying, even for his older age, but he's a good man through and through. There's Dan Hicks, who's a younger man, and uh, he's new to the MC and the caravan. Teddy Maldonado is a middle-aged guy, and he's been writing since he was a kid, so he knows the life better than most. And finally, we have Tilly Clemens, who's an ex-nurse from the town of Opulence. And now, our players. We have Ariel, who plays Fay Maddox. Faye is The Chosen, who's a level 9, and uh, she used to be The Flake. She's a chaotic good, and will accomplish her goals by any means necessary. We have Pierce, who plays Ray Colefield. Ray is the wronged, and he's level 8, and he was dealt a bad hand in life and has made a lot of mistakes, and now he wants to make amends with himself. Punk is Wesley McCoy. Wesley is the crooked, level 8, an ex-con who smokes way too much slush. Wesley doesn't care about much, but when push comes to shove, he always knows just the person for a job. And finally, we have our newest player, Cam, who is playing Charles North. Charles is the expert, level seven, and uh, Charles woke up with nothing but his name in a suited up wagon. He can't remember anything and he's on a mission to find out what happened. And now it's time to get into the recap. There were a lot of smaller details that were cut out for time purposes but I've included the main story points, the route of the caravan, as well as like funny moments and key points from the previous sessions. This will be the only session like this Uh, which is why I'm calling it episode zero. Episode one and beyond will be strictly playing Monster of the Week. I just didn't want to put my players through restarting the entire campaign, a lot of information they already knew, things like that. So this is kind of sort of bridging the gap between the beginning and where we are now. So with all that out of the way, I really do hope that you enjoy this little recap. Um, I know it's a little weird, but uh, any key story moments and things that you need to know, any elements, mechanics, things like that, I will be explaining at the start of the next actual like session. So um, yeah, again, hope you enjoy, and let's get into the recap. <laughs> Uh, hello. Um, uh, hi Dad. We are alive.
1: That's unfortunate. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Bad. Uh, Pierce, buddy, you've been about you've been at about like twelve, we're gonna need you to tone it down to about three. You can't say stuff like that. Yeah, live, man. Okay, like you really gotta just just come on, oh, Jesus, we Jesus, told you man, about slaves. What did I say? <laughs> I didn't know a person who could hate a group of people so much. Yeah, Jesus, I don't Christ. make anything. Like, we are 10
0: God. seconds into this recording. Oh, I didn't I say. Any. respect? Like,
1: I mean, come on. You knew what you were signing up for when yeah, you invited us. If, if you us. put this on YouTube, you're <laughs> yeah. going to have to bleep out all the cuss
0: words within the first minute. You're going to have to bleep out everything Pierce said. I am not I'm, I didn't I'm not say even anything. anything on YouTube. We don't got to worry about. Age it's all the same. YouTube doesn't actually yeah. pay their creators anyway. Yeah, our shit's gonna get age-restricted no matter what, so...
1: yeah, I mean, yeah, that's not not. Gonna it, us? Should be. <laughs> it should be by default, so like, cussing just kinda helps it nudge along the way, you know? Fuck. Okay. Whoa, okay, let's calm down. Let's a little bit. There's no need to go <laughs> that far. Jesus Damn Christ. Damn it. So I think uh, he already broke the well.
0: <laughs> so I think the... I think the first, the best way to start off is to just go ahead and go down the list and introduce the characters and give a little bit of story. So first we got uh, Ariel. Uh, so yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about Faye? That's your cue.
1: Really now?
0: <laughs> You're you
1: know struggling a little I bit. Do you need your do you need me to feed you your line or? When you get the cue cards? You got the new script, right? We had a new script? uh from Apple... She was born in Applewood, but she moved to Opulence uh, shortly after her parents' death, and she's here to right her wrongs, really, and find out what happened to her brother.
0: Okay. Moving on down the list, we got Pierce. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Ray. Ray's a rugged
1: man. He he did a lot of things in his past. He deeply regrets everything. So he joined the caravan to try and make up for it.
0: All right. Moving on down, we got Punk. Why don't you, why don't you give us a little bit of insight on Wesley? You know, he's, he's a pretty cool
1: guy. I, I don't actually know where my PDFs are. Oh, God. That's <laughs> fine. Uh... But the question of where the said PDF is... Who knows, really? You know, Wesley might know. It's lost to history. But I actually got your PDF. You have my PDF? Jesus <laughs> Why Christ. the fuck do you have my PDF? Okay. How have you made it this far in life? You know, Wesley is a little fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants kind of guy. All right, you know? He, he never really has a plan. If In, in actuality... He does have an ability that gives him a boost. Whatever he doesn't. He goes into a situation without planning ahead. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember what the fuck it was called. Uh, my best friend is Walmart Tommy Chong. Uh, my most prized possession is a VHS copy of Shrek. Uh, I mean, that, that really just that kind of sums me up.
0: Yeah, As a person, goes,
1: I feel like, you know, I, I, I think that really, got, uh,
0: yeah, I think it's yeah, pretty well. All right, and then we're going to uh, get to Charles. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Charles?
1: So, Charles doesn't know anything about who he is because he woke up from some sort of traumatic event and he has no memories except his name, and he knows that he had guns on him and a wagon.
0: A very kitted out wagon. Oh, yeah. This thing's got an infirmary, a library, an armory, a workshop, a panic room. This this wagon has got him set for fucking life, man.
1: My wagon's nicer than some people's homes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Alright, so who's ready to rock and roll with this thing and relearn your characters? Because it's been... Well, Cameron's, Cameron's uh I've got to learn Charles, my character
1: to begin with.
0: Yeah, this is going to be, like, uh, next week is going to be his first actual session with us. And my first session
1: probably since 2021.
0: And for us playing this campaign, it's been a good six, seven months since we've actually gotten into it because computer problems. <laughs> Technical uh,
1: difficulties, that's what we I call it. I blame Paul.
0: Yeah we just call it technical difficulties and sum everything up into one. Alright, we're going to start off with good old session one. Cameron's going to be learning as he goes. Our story begins as the caravan get ready to rest for the night, when they are met by a group of mutated wolves. They barely manage to fend off the attack, but not without consequence. Dan was caught off guard, having his chest ripped open. Faye, tapping into her magical abilities, tries to heal him. Instead, she loses control as her hands burst into roaring flames directly onto his chest. Ernest, using his earpiece, calls in a trauma team from the town of Opulence. Within a mere 20 minutes, a giant metal blimp flies in over the horizon, picks up Dan, and flies away. After almost being destroyed by a group of wolves, the caravan traveled the night to make it to Nirvana to drop off supplies and pick up another load. They arrive at the capitol building where they met Mayor Moses Greer, was a sleazy man, obviously drunk, known for making bad decisions and cutting deals with criminals. The party sat with Greer and went over the goods and then received their pay, after which he returned to his quarters. Wesley then decided to dig his hand into an algae-covered fountain on the wall of the Capitol building, finding a flash drive with an unreadable file. And after several failed attempts by Wesley to stick the drive into Ray's leg, Faye took it and stored it in her memory bank. Afterwards, the party overheard Greer in an angry, drunken call, discovering him to be upset because of some sort of bad deal with the person on the other end. The party then decides to hit the town to spend their whale earned credits. Faye, Ray, Tilly, and Teddy decide to visit the Treasure Trove, a novelty shop in the shape of a treasure chest. Upon entering the shop, they see shelves upon shelves overflowing with useless relics, trinkets, and other oddities, as well as the head of the shop, a peculiar woman named Astrid DeVille who would not accept credits, but instead dealt in vials of blood. Mysteriously, she knew Fay by name, and with no questions, her and Ray traded trinkets, an orb and pendant respectively, for half a pint of their blood. As the needle was removed from Faye's arm, she noticed a book on the table next to her, and with a distraction from Ray, flipped through the book, recording all the pages with her bionic eye. The book, though, was in a language she couldn't understand. As Ernest decided to go back to the cabin to try and get some rest, Wesley and Harvey went to grab a bite to eat from The Fiddler, a low-end restaurant. And while walking down the street, they were approached by a small boy, who was crying and stated he, he was lost and looking for his mom and dad, asking Wesley for help and trying to lead him towards an alleyway. Without a second thought, Wesley kicked him in the shin, shattering his kneecap and sending him into a world of pain, after which a group of kids wielding various weapons carried the boy into the alleyway, almost certainly a mugging thwarted. After a long look of disgust turned to understanding from Harvey, he and Wesley entered the restaurant, where Wesley ordered the biggest burger the owner had. The owner, thinking he had a big spender, went out to the back and slaughtered his prize cow, making Wesley the best burger in the entirety of the MC. to which Wesley subsequently dropped on the dirty ground, picked back up, and proceeded to eat. After not being able to pay the tab, Wesley talked down the owner, Gus, from his aggression, to which Harvey reluctantly paid for in full with his savings and a promise from Wesley to pay him back. The other half of the party decided to stop by the Aristocut, a weapons store, where Faye purchased some throwing knives, and Ray, with the help of Teddy, purchased a sawed-off shotgun until he got some brass knuckles. Afterwards, uh, Faye went to the fiddler to get a bite to eat, as Ray and the rest of the group went to the cabin. Upon approaching the fiddler, Faye spots Wesley standing at the front of the restaurant, drooling on the door, screaming and asking for free food. With the owner, Gus, clearly distressed, Faye convinces him to leave. Faye ended up ordering a plate of beef tails to go, to which Gus gave her a discount after getting Wesley to leave, and she left back for the cabin. Wesley, on his way back, met a shady guy in an alleyway and purchased five grand's of flashback. And Faye ends up catching up with him, not knowing about his drug deals, and they headed back to the cabin with Wesley asking Faye for food the entire way. As they arrive at the cabin, Wesley approaches Ray, giving him a gram of flashbang, telling him it's something called Bang Flash and will give him superpowers. Ray decides to not ask any questions at all and graciously accepts the Bang Flash. The next morning, the caravan sets off after picking up a load of assorted chairs and tables from Olga, the Ministry of Affairs, and they head out for Broad Hollow. Five days into the travel, the party is riding the trail as usual, and the ground begins to shake. From the ground emerges a 70-foot-long sandworm that shoots into the air. And after their wagon falls over, knocking them to the ground, Ray and Wesley both snort a gram of flashbang, giving them just enough of a boost to run away from the monster who is dive-bombing directly on top of them. The worm shoots back up into the air, and Wesley quickly covers a bullet in flashbang and fires it at the monster, which stuns it, causing it to lose direction and free fall to the ground. The worm crashes to the ground, landing on the wagon, destroying it and sending debris flying straight towards the caravan. Then, as the worm starts racing towards the party again, they hear a loud horn, and it suddenly changes directions. They look over to see a group of free stags on horseback, blowing horns and leading the worm away. While the party is saved by the free stags, diverting the monster's attention away, it is short-lived because Teddy decides to fire a shot at the monster, redirecting it back towards the party. The worm chased them off course as Ernest led them toward a location he knew. He led them to the former city of Savannah, Georgia. The worm, in its rage, launched a large rock at the wagons, which shattered as one piece flies out and hits Faye directly in her eye, knocking her unconscious. The party stopped outside of a metal bunker, to which they opened and got everyone inside. And just seconds later, the worm crashed into the door, bending and twisting it under the sheer impact. And suddenly, in the distance, they hear the sound of hoofs stampeding and screaming, and they come to the conclusion that the free stags again dragged the monster away. And as everyone looked around the room, they realized they're trapped. Mm -hmm. Listen, I would like to
1: add, you know, we wouldn't have been able to defeat that, that worm if it wasn't. For my ingenious, quick thinking. Oh yeah, like, this, well, this, this, yeah. No, It was to like Here's... Ray. At one point, Ray had to pick us all up and run away. Literally, the man, the man picked us up and ran.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like there was some sketchy situations. Yeah, I mean, on top of that, and the fucking just everybody tr- like learning their characters and just watching the chaos unfold. For me, oh, the yeah, dungeon master was very entertaining what
1: he did that on horseback
0: <laughs> <Good part. laughs> well right now we're on to session two locked in a pitch black cramped bunker tensions start to rise the only light was from a small flashlight that tilly had in her bag As so wesley begins to throw himself at the door over and over again until he's left in pain Ernest begins to speak and then immediately loses consciousness and falls to the floor as Tilly kneels over Ernest, she notices that a piece of the boulder has pierced his side and he was losing a lot of blood. Wesley starts to drag Faye's body over to the door and try to use her magic when she wakes up. Out of the corner of her eye, she sees the ghostly figure of a woman standing next to Tilly and a small child cowering in the corner. Hearing about Ernest's condition, she is able to control her magic and heal him, but he still has not woken up. Faye sees a terrified look from the ghostly figures and they hastily walk towards the other side of the room and disappear through a door. The group enters the door and finds a ladder leading up to a hatch. Wesley quickly climbs up the ladder and tries to open the hatch unsuccessfully. Ray grabs him by his ankle and pulls him to the floor and then proceeds to climb the ladder. But Wesley starts trying to pull him down as well. After a very drawn-out fight between the two, Faye climbs up herself and opens the hatch, revealing a small broom closet. The little girl walks through the closed door up to Faye and tangibly grabs her hand and asks, Will you help us? As Faye mutters the words, I'll try. The small door flies open with a burst of cold wind, revealing a small bedroom, and through another open door on the opposite side of the closet, a grand foyer with once beautiful limestone walls, granite columns, and marble accents. A quick look around reveals that the party is in a 20th century mansion, and after a very sketchy but successful attempt to get an unconscious Ernest up the ladder, the party enters the bedroom and finds two skeletons laying on the bed, one an adult, the other a child, both with gunshot wounds to the head. Faye tries to explain to the group the unusual situation she has found herself in, but no one seems to believe her. And as the rest of the party stayed behind to look after Ernest, Faye, Ray, and Wesley start looking for answers. As they search the bedroom, they find the skeleton of a woman uh, who's wearing a very familiar-looking necklace, and they also find a note in a dresser drawer, as well as a small key. The note is a letter to the woman's brother, explaining that food was running out, tensions were high, and she wished he'd hurry back. Splitting up, Wesley decides to look for food. Uh, he enters the kitchen, and after completely destroying it, finds nothing. Then he moves to the laundry room, finding a singular moldy cracker on the ground, which he promptly eats. Ray and Faye, on the other hand, find their way to the study, and as they approach, the f- uh, Fay's orb begins to glow. Inside, under a desk, they find a locked box with a four-letter key code. As they examine the nearby bookshelf, Ray notices that four encyclopedias are in the wrong place. And noticing that the book letters spell help, they put uh, the word into the keypad, and the box opens, revealing three pairs of spectacles. As Ray puts on a pair, he is shocked to find that he can also see the spirits. They leave to look for Wesley, but little do they know he's having his own fun. He's in the backyard next to the pool, completely green after centuries of being unkept. Underneath a large statue of a moth-like man in the center, he sees a small gleam at the bottom, and with no hesitation, jumps in. Covered in algae and stinking the high hell, he comes up holding a skeletal leg. As Faye and Ray continue their search, Wesley decides that it's time for a nap and heads upstairs to the master bedroom, crawling under the covers with an adult skeleton as two more child skeletons lay on the floor. Giving up on their search, the two decide to go to the library, finding a singular book with a golden moth on the cover. Flipping through, they see that there is a multitude of words circled in red. After taking a horribly long time to decipher the words, they realize it's a code. The code reads, As the Mothman and the Chosen wait for the battle at the rise of darkness, they must stand face to face to end it all. Next, they decide to search the front garden, finding a large statue of a man, holding a sword and shield, as well as notice the Moth statue in the center of the pool through the large glass windows of the foyer. Ray tries to open the gates to the outside world, but upon closer inspection from Fay, she realizes that there is a magical ward far more powerful than her abilities, keeping it locked. They also find another small key under a fake rock by the statue's feet, as well as a keyhole at the base. As they turn the key, the statue of the man begins to rotate, facing the pool, and then rotates back. They come to the conclusion that they must turn both the statues at the same time at sunset. They eventually find Wesley lying in bed with the skeleton and, horrified, see the ghosts of a young woman and two kids cowering in the corner. They recount their adventures with each other and explain what they need to do, as well as give Wesley the second pair of spectacles. Wesley recounts the shimmering in the pool, and that it must be the keyhole, happily agreeing to take another swim. At sunset, Wesley dives in, and they turn the keys simultaneously. The statues turn to face each other, and then a large metal clink is heard in the house. They see a ghostly white man standing next to the pool, crying. He pulls out a pistol and begins to walk towards the house. The party watches in horror as the man strategically walks into every room of the house, shooting everyone inside. He makes his way to the family room, and as the party enters, they find an adult skeleton lying on the ground atop another young child, shielding them. As the man walks through a bookshelf, and disappears. After a quick search of the room, uh, Faye finds some books that strangely had no authors, pulling these books, spelled out the word survive, as the bookshelf swings open, revealing another ladder with a hatch at the top. Upon entering the hatch, they find the skeleton of a man with a bullet hole through his skull holding in one hand a pistol and the other a note. They also find a cache of weapons, ammo, and food. The party reads the note addressed to Ernest, and in it, the man Abraham Summers described how food rations were running low and tensions were high, so he locked the food away in the attic to prevent the rest from helping themselves. He then found Ernest's son, Nathan, dead in the pool and thought everyone would think that he killed him, so he decided to kill them first, sparing them the truth and the slow death from starvation. He killed everyone in the house, including his own family, and then locked himself in the attic and killed himself. The last line read, Please forgive me, Ernest, signed Abraham Summers, with a splatter of blood covering it. After a quiet trip back downstairs, Ernest begins to rouse. Ray hands him the note as he begins to read it slowly and thoroughly. And then Faye sees standing in front of the couch the spirits of Ernest's family. Faye hands Ernest the third pair of spectacles as he stands and watches, completely speechless at his family. His niece, Rose, sister, Allie, wife, Julia, and children, Alma and Nathan, smile at him and wave as they slowly fade into a cloud of white light and dissipate. And as they do, so does the spectacles, fading out of existence. Much like that. (laughs) Don't know what (laughs) happened there.
1: I think it's it's pretty clear. You were narrating it. He just faded out of existence.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's I mean, role. Yeah, that's, like
1: pretty, I, mean, I call pretty that.
0: That's a pretty damn good roleplay right there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: He's a dedicated guy, you know. He truly faded from existence, like, he's offline on Discord. What the fuck happened? He got, he got straight up Thanos snapped. There he what is. The <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck just happened? You just snapped your fingers <laughs> yeah. and you back. <laughs> um, it would appear that my Discord... Shit itself, but the I'm... Timing. The timing of all of that was just yes. so stupid. <laughs> okay,
0: let's, I guess let's get back into it, then. <laughs> um, then Faye looks down to find a large key sitting in the palm of her hand. Ernest explained to the party that he and his best friend Abraham had taken up shelter here with their families. Ernest had gone out on a supply run, but ended up having to go out farther to find food than he thought. When he returned, everyone was dead. He left, joined a caravan, and never looked back. When the caravan was being chased, he knew the bunker was close and made sure, no matter how he felt, that his new family would be safe. Full of emotions, the reunited party makes their way to the gate as Fay pushes the key into the lock and it instantly starts to dissolve, much like the spectacles. The gate swings open and the party makes it back to the remaining horses and wagons. Fay finds a lone horse from the destroyed wagon and decided to name it Mudslide. Then they saddle up and continue their trip to Broad Hollow. See, I think this is kind of one of those sessions that was so confusing for you guys that it was a little hard to remember.
1: Yeah, a lot of that was hard to remember. I just remember Wesley getting a giant crate of food. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was (laughs) really hard to remember. But I I thought I remembered um, them fighting up the ladder the second time, too.
0: Oh, probably, honestly. I'm sure.
1: Yep. Because I remember shooting downwards at him. And yeah, I think we were
0: shooting at each other. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah. I, like through each other. We tried using hands,
1: but, like, we're not, each other.
0: not... Yeah, that was a very interesting session. Especially considering it took Ray, like, three hours to find the answer to the, 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 uh, the puzzle.
1: <laughs> yeah, not the fact that Wesley was cuddling skeletons while covered in algae and moss. (laughs) Are you you okay? Oh, like you've never done that before.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't everyone cuddled a skeleton in moss before?
1: (laughs) We do that every Sunday here.
0: (laughs) I'm sure it happens all the time for Ray. That sounds like an Ohio thing to me. (laughs) (laughs) The algae toil of states. And uh, now we get to where things start to get interesting. Mm -hmm. some of the parts that you guys remember Uh session 3 leading the caravan on the trail Faye is brought to a halt by a group of free stags the leader of this group Tishanka, handed her a map and instructed the caravan to meet them after their drop off and after a long conversation debating the intentions of these free stags they decide to go but first they need to drop off their materials they arrive in the city of Broad Hollow, Wesley's hometown and make it to the capitol building As they're getting ready to unload, a woman angrily storms out and walks off down the street. They meet and talk with the mayor, one Floyd Ewing, who immediately starts berating them for missing a wagon, while also finding out that the supplies are for a feast being held tonight. Ewing also informs the party that they are invited as a neutral third party. According to Ewing, Ernest and his caravan have made a name for themselves in Broad Hollow, and people have began calling them the Renegades. He wants them to come to show support for his grand plan being unveiled tonight. He also explains to Ernest that if him or his lackeys fuck him over, they'll be held to pay. The caravan then decided to take some time before the feast to explore the town. Wesley and Faye got into a fight about who Tilly would go with, and Tilly decided that she would go with Faye first and afterwards go eat lunch with Wesley. Faye and Tilly decided to go to one of the clothing stores of the Textile Capital, Fit So Good, while Ray made his way to the Dirty Quill, a bookstore, and Wesley went to grab a bite to eat at the Codfather. The rest of the caravan decided to grab a drink from one of the taverns and then head to the cabin. While walking towards the clothing store, Faye notices a familiar building down the street. It's a building in the shape of a treasure chest. She rushes down the street, leaving Tilly behind and heads inside. She sees that the shelves look quite neater than last time, stocked quite well and somewhat organized. Then she hears a voice from behind asking her if she had deciphered the book, and standing in front of the door is Astrid, the owner. She informs Faye that she knew all along that she had opened the book and was simply playing along for amusement. She also tells Faye that there is a lot that she knows that cannot yet be told, because Faye is not ready. She also handed her a shrunken head on a string, a leather brace for Ray, and a necklace pendant for Wesley, then quickly ushers her out the door. Faye turns around, and the shop is completely gone without a trace as Tilly runs up, clearly out of breath. Faye begins to explain where she went, and a confused Tilly never saw any building that looked like that. Then they decided to drop it, and continued on their way to the clothing store. Ray enters the dirty quill and is immediately met by an overzealous clerk, ready to help. After some looking around and some unsuccessful bargaining, Ray decides to trade his hunting rifle for an old compass, but little does he know this compass has the ability to track beasts. We find Wesley at the Godfather, where he finds a girl around his age who he clearly slept with in the past and has no knowledge of. He sweet talks his way into getting free food and then sits down for a meal. As he sat down at his table, the woman went over to one of her co-workers and started talking and pointing at Wesley. He then stood up and pointed at someone else, shouting, She's not talking about me! To which everyone in the restaurant immediately turned their attention towards him. One of the faces in the crowd he immediately recognized as his old only, Luther Graves. Wesley walked towards him and was met by four men hired to guard Luther. By some stroke of luck, the group that helped him on an old job were in the restaurant and attacked the four guards. Wesley took this opportunity to invert the kneecap of his old boss, causing him to pass out. And looting him, Wesley found a very ambiguous wallet and a weighted coin. And at this point, chaos had ensued in the restaurant and a massive bar fight had broken out. In the madness of chairs being thrown, bottles being broken, and people fighting all around, one of the four guards picked up Wesley and started dragging him towards the door. In the struggle, he shot the guard in the foot and in doing so, lost the quarter. The gunshot caused mass panic and everyone started running out of the restaurant and fighting in the streets. Wesley was thrown out of the front door and the building was completely locked down. While this was happening, Faye and Tilly were approached by a young man, who was an apprentice at Fit So Good, looking for someone to undergo a job. He explains that a girl he fancies, Josephine, came in to buy a dress three days ago and was supposed to return it the day after, but she has since been missing for two days. He assures Faye that if they can find her and bring her back, he would pay what he could and his boss, the owner, would pay handsomely for the return of the dress. She decides to accept the commission and leaves to find Ray as Tilly leaves to find Wesley. Faye entered the bookstore and her magical sight directed her to a box in the corner of the store with something glowing with magical energy inside. She magically sealed the box, brought it over to the receptionist, and slyly convinced her that the box was empty and bought it for cheap. She also bought two books of far speech. Faye then directed Ray to a rope imbued with magical thread and told him about the nature of his compass. Ray, after another failed attempt to haggle the price of the rope, uh, bought it at full price. Faye informed him of the commission and they set off to find the dress and the woman. Tilly made it to the restaurant, seeing the aftermath of the chaos and the restaurant completely locked down, to find Wesley in a back alley smoking slush. And after some questioning and not a single straight answer from Wesley, she informed him of the commission and they left to meet up with Fay and Ray. Faye and Ray arrive at Josephine's house, noticing the trail of blood leading out the door into the wastes. They look through the house and see that it's ransacked and there were signs of a struggle, as well as splotches of blood all over the bedroom. They also find a piece of a broken mask. And as they leave out of the front door, they spot a small girl named Millie walking towards them. She asks if they're going to find Miss Josephine and asks if she can come along. She tells them that she doesn't have parents and Josephine brings her food and is the only one that is nice to her. She woke up to loud noises a couple nights ago and looked through the window to see four men in masks dragging Josephine out of town. They're about to follow the blood trail out of town when Faye spots an old man sitting on the porch staring at her. They approach the man and ask him some questions, but he quickly gets aggressive and saying he knew nothing. After Faith threatened him, he admitted that he had heard screaming in a struggle but didn't pay it too much mind. With a little girl by her side and a conversation that was not helpful in the slightest, they set out of town. They followed the trail, but eventually the sand started to cover the tracks until it was completely gone they struggled for over an hour to find the trail again which was plenty enough time for wesley and tilly to catch up as they reconnected with faye and ray faye explained the situation uh, with the little girl and handed wesley the pendant wesley found the trail almost instantly which led them to the mouth of a large cave inside said cave they found five men in masks similar to the fragment they had found and a woman in a red dress badly beaten and strapped to a chair They seemed to be interrogating her about the location of a pendant, with Josephine saying over and over again that she didn't know where it was and she lost it. Ray casually strolls into the cave without warning and opens fire, while everyone else stood back to watch the chaos. He stood in the middle of these five men, completely unscathed, and with a few well-placed shots, a rope of binding to capture the leader, a convincing Ray telling two of the bandits to leave, a very confusing moment where Faye changed her body into a bandit to cause a distraction, and a sickening inverting of the already captured bandit leader's kneecaps by Wesley, the party successfully saved Josephine and retrieved the red dress, all while simultaneously traumatizing a poor girl. Faye and Tilly took the woman and the dress back to Fit So Good to retrieve their payment, and Ray and Wesley took the bandit leader to the local jail and turn him in for a bounty. During this time, Millie asked Faye if she could travel with them. Because of the fact that she had lost her family when she was young, she believed that if she learned from them, she could also help save people's families one day. And reluctantly, Faye agrees. The officer at the jail immediately recognized a wanted Wesley and tried to arrest him, to which Ray and Wesley ran out of the police station and ended up losing the officer. And with the chaos settled, it was time for the banquet. Floyd Ewing sat at a large table hosting dozens of guests, including the now named Renegades, the mayors of multiple towns, including the woman they saw earlier in the day, and the general of the peacekeepers. It turns out the Ewing's plan was to have the PK completely control the town's policing systems, setting aside outposts, having guards to escort caravans from one town to the other, and believed this would usher in a new era of peace, trust, and unity among the settlements. Fay was immediately able to tell that everything coming out of his mouth was a lie. It wasn't about peace and trust at all. So Faye, Ray, and Wesley all voted against the plan, and the rest of the caravan voted for the plan, heeding Ewing's words. The vote was split 50-50, and after a few more questions, some untruthful answers, a man ended up changing his vote, which set it into motion. As they started to head back to the cabin, sitting out front was a familiar face. Dan had recovered, and though he had a new cybernetic heart, he was rearing to get back to it. After the rest of the caravan had gone to bed, our main three stayed behind to come up with a plan. With minimal planning and a lot of ambition, they decided to take out Ewing early tomorrow morning and settled in for the night. During the night, Wesley woke up and began to walk outside, except he couldn't control his own body. He walked around the back of the cabin where he saw an unnaturally bright light and a beautiful woman floating off the ground. He recognized this woman as Madeline McCoy. Madeline asked him to do one simple task to gather information on Faye. Then he woke up in his bed with no memory of what had just happened. After a slight lie to Ernest on their destination and a promise to bring back whiskey, the three left early in the morning to head to the Capitol building. After making their way inside, they find Floyd Ewing, Marjorie Benson, the mayor of Mountain Ridge, and Anthony Glover, the leader of the PK. Ray tried to convince Floyd to show him where the bathroom was, to which Floyd asked his son Oliver to show him instead. Ray followed Oliver into the bathroom and used the rope binding on him. Meanwhile, Wesley went to the bathroom to check on them, found the boy tied up, and then went back to try to convince Floyd that Oliver was sick and that he needed to come help him. After not being able to persuade him, Ray came up and said the same story, to which Ray and Wesley then escorted Floyd to the bathroom. Meanwhile, Faye, after giving her name, led Marjorie and Anthony into Floyd's office to talk to them about the deal between him and the P.K., She sneakily sat at his desk and downloaded the files from his computer onto her cybernetic chip and kept them distracted. In the bathroom, Wesley knocked out Floyd after hiding the child in one of the stalls. Wesley picked him up and carried him to the other stall and then proceeded to violently drown him in the toilet. After successfully distracting the two, Ray entered the room and convinced them that Floyd's son Oliver was very sick and Floyd had rushed him to a hospital. As they left the building, Faye, with some quick thinking, rushed to the bathroom and opened a portal in the toilet bowl to the cave where they fought the bandits. Wesley shoved Ewing into the toilet, causing his body to be transported to the cave, giving them somewhat of an alibi. Wesley then convinced young Oliver to go with them with the intent of having a bargaining chip. As the rest of the group joined back with the caravan, Faye stopped by a store to pick up some hair dye for young Oliver on the way. And after arriving back at the cabin, Ernest began to ask about why they had the mayor's son and Faye manifested a small bottle of whiskey for Ernest after telling him the gruesome crimes that they had committed, knowing they couldn't convince him otherwise. Ernest very hastily got the rest of the caravan ready to go, loaded up their goods, and got them out as quick as possible. They headed out for the spot on the map and arrived three days later, reaching a small opening at a mountainside. Met by Tishunka, now formally introducing himself as the son of the chief, he ushers them inside. And after walking through a small cave, it opened up to what the free Stags call the Grotto. A small forgotten place that they call home, full of lush green grass, a fresh waterfall, and a lake of mountain water, roaming buffalo and cattle, as well as flowers the likes of the caravan has never seen. They were brought to a teepee, where they met the chief, Washitaka, sitting in front of a small fire, and he asked Faye to tell him what she saw in the smoke. As she looked, she saw a group of people surrounding an oval-like shape dancing around it. He then asked her to extinguish the fire. But instead, she accidentally shot a fireball out of her hand, making the fire erupt, and he immediately extinguished it. He lit the fire with his own magic, and then proceeded to explain to them the history of the Freestags. The Freestags formed when the chief's great-great-grandfather's ancestors came to him and told him of the coming war. He united many of the tribes and got them to come to this spot, now known as the Grotto. When the bombs dropped, the Grotto was completely unaffected by the nuclear fallout. As the years went on, the survivors began to see the Freestags, the people they did once before savages and in doing so caused tensions between both the free stags and the survivors eventually leading to them killing first and asking questions later as the generations went on the chief's father attempted to reconcile with the new world and was ambushed and murdered causing the chief to take over after this rebellion broke out amongst the people and the chief's son claimed an old goddess came to him and told him of a way to restore peace to this world in which doing so gained a following As more people joined in with the rituals, they became more powerful, and it got to the point where the chief had to exile his son. This caused outrage, and the free stags branched off into three separate factions. The broken spear remained at the grotto, trying to reconcile the relationships, not only between the survivors, but also the other branches. The blind bears had moved away to a different area, and do not associate with either branch. They were tired of the constant attempts to reconcile with survivors, and so they decided to leave. They will now not even acknowledge the existence of other stags, and believe the survivors are too far gone for peace. The last faction is the Ancient Hand. This is the group led by the Chief's firstborn son. This group does not associate with either branch as well, and they have set up raid parties to murder survivors, bandits, and caravans. Anything in their way is seen as a threat. The Ancient Hand ended up completing their ritual and opened the portal to another world. This world is filled with monsters hell-bent destroying the MC and the entirety of the remainder of planet Earth. They were tricked by an evil deity that wants to see this world destroyed. They also learn that as time goes on, the rift is getting bigger and bigger and will allow much bigger and much worse monsters through, capable of causing more destruction than the nuclear war itself. The chief wants the party to help find this portal and informs Faye that they were watching her perform magic, which as far as they know, only free stags are able to accomplish. And since Faye is also able to do magic, the chief wants his two daughters to research her and her abilities. After this massive info dump, the party settles in for the night. Yeah, session three was a big fucking session. A lot happened there.
1: Yeah, sorry, just gonna say, Ernest is really ride or die. We just told him our war crimes and then gave him alcohol and he was like, yep, let's go.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, man, is like, all right, you know, we'll get you out of there. We'll at least try to have somewhat of a shaky <laughs> alibi. <laughs>
1: You can't break the Geneva Convention if Geneva doesn't exist in this world.
0: <laughs> All right, session four. Uh, end of arc one. Sleeping in the bed inside of the teepee, Ray is reminded of a memory, one he wishes he could forget. He awakes in his bed and sees a note attached to his door, written in blood that reads, "You're welcome." Signed, Your Destiny he walks to his parents bedroom and opens up the door to find them sitting with a bullet hole between their eyes and on the wall written in their blood it says you'll understand one day as the flames begin to rise around them the party awakes to the breathtaking view of the grotto in full daylight the chief's daughters chumani and wachapi approach the party and offer them some medicinal tea they also inform faye that they are ready for her assessment faye and tilly head towards the teepee while ray and wesley are approached by a young woman named Chibuka. she tells them that her father does not want her to join the search parties so she asks them to teach her how to use a bow and arrow so she can show her father that she can fight chibani asks tilly to wait outside as faye sits down in a chair in the middle of the teepee and the chief's daughters begin to chant a glorious blue light and a swirling wind fills the teepee where the spirits assess Fay's magic the spirit of the wolf fargus who is the spirit of leadership the spirit of the deer Fiana, who is the spirit of the follower, the spirit of the crow, Varus, who is the spirit of evil, and the spirit of the moth, whose origins are unknown. Suddenly, through the door, a wolf, covered in the same beautiful blue light, slowly begins to circle her, snarling and growling unnaturally. The wolf looks her up and down and then slowly walks out. And then a deer comes in, bathed in that same light. It prances around her in the same way as the wolf, and it sniffs her a few times, bleats seemingly sadly, and walks out. Next, a single crow flies in, lands on the chair in front of her, looks her in the eyes, and flies away. Finally, a swarm of moths fly through the door. Hundreds of them fill the teepees, and the sound is overwhelming. And then it suddenly stops. The sounds in the teepee stop as well. There is complete and utter silence, as one by one, these moths fly out of the door until a singular moth is left this moth being considerably bigger than the rest sits in stasis right in front of her and she begins to get the overwhelming sensation to hold her hand out towards it and as she does it lands perfectly on the tip of her finger a warmth rushes through her as she hears a voice in her head that says welcome home my child the moth crawls into the palm of her hand as the very essence of it fuses with her soul, and in doing so, the moth dissolves into her hand as she is bathed in the same beautiful blue light. Confused and mortified, the sisters explained to Faye that no one had ever been accepted by the moth before, and they were unsure of its meaning. Meanwhile, Ray and Wesley spent a few hours teaching Chabuka how to use a bow and arrow though there are some shenanigans like wesley kicking ray in the knee and ray tying up Wes with a rope of binding and pretending to blow his kneecaps off they work together to train the young woman who turns out to be a marksman with her bow and afterwards ray tells her to try his hand cannon to which it sends her flying back and slams into her forehead the loud gunshot grabs the attention of her father who doesn't approve of her sneaking off the train and after some hefty convincing wesley continues to train Chabuka, and ray starts to train her father just then, the entire grotto's attention is grabbed by Tishunka, screaming for help. As everyone gathers around, except for Wesley, who decided to watch from afar, they notice the chief laying motionless on the ground. Faye instantly jumps into action and begins to heal him, to which he jumps up and exclaims, I knew it! To the confusion of everyone, the chief explains that the free stags are simply conduits for the magic, and they have to use either articles of clothing or weapons fashioned from magically imbued items to harness it. With Fay, however, the magic flows through her. She is able to harness it without any need for tools or clothing. Chimani also informs the chief of the test results, and he tells everyone that he apologizes for the scare, and then wards himself inside of the teepee. After this, Fay's shrunken head falls off of her necklace and rolls behind an oak tree. As Fay follows it, she finds Astrid waiting for her, and Astrid shows her a hologram of a man dressed in a PK uniform. The man says that Faye is wanted for questioning in the disappearance of Mayor Floyd Ewing, his son Oliver Ewing, and the murder of PK General Anthony Glover. Ashford informs her that it is posted everywhere throughout the MC, and asks her to tell her what happened at Broad Hollow. After Faye explains, Ashford tells her that this wasn't the way it was supposed to happen, and under no circumstances can she get caught, or the world is doomed. And she also goes on to tell Faye that she needs her to kill the sandworm, and afterwards she will be waiting in Peril to explain everything to everyone. The beast is on a rampage towards Peril, and if they want to stop it, they must leave by daybreak. As Faye rejoins the caravan, minus Wesley and Ray, they are talking to Tchunka and a couple of other Freestags. Tchunka explains that this beast is otherworldly, and they've been working for weeks to distract it, but their last party was shot down by another caravan. He also explains that they discovered while it is powerful, it is blind. It navigates through vibrations in the ground and can track up to 10 miles away, and it also has exceptional hearing. He also explains that its mouth is the best spot for attacking, as its skin is made of a powerful material capable of blocking all sorts of projectiles. But also to beware of the mouth, as the worm's saliva is radioactive and quite acidic. Finally, he tells the party that... The worm appears to have children, smaller versions of itself, but they are just as lethal as the big one. Tishunka also offers three of his best fighters to come and help, Hana, Wilu, and Tua, who have faced the beast multiple times. And he also assures the caravan that they are welcome back any time uh, once they leave. Ray and Wesley finish training Chibuka and her father, and as a reward, she gives Ray a hunting knife and Wesley a big knife. After Ray and Wesley rejoin the caravan and are brought up to speed. They decide to leave for Peril at sunup tomorrow. As everyone gets ready for bed, Faye decides to go to the chief. She asks him about Asher Deville and her brother Fenris. And though the chief wasn't able to provide her with answers, she seemed to have an understanding with him. She then tried looking into the fire to try and locate her brother, when a mutated, burned, gurgling version of him appears and reaches out his hand, and then promptly disappears. And as the party finally settles down for the night, this night is not like any other. The caravan are safer than they've ever been, yet couldn't feel more anxious. The tension in the air can be cut with a knife, and it's four days from now, everything will change. The life of a caravan is on the back burner, and the journey to saving the world begins. It takes everyone several hours to fall asleep, surprisingly even Wesley, who is usually out by the time he hits the bed. We see Faye finally dozing off, Millie curled up next to her. Tilly looks over her and smiles, and then settles on herself. We see Ernest and Harvey, playing card games and drinking, mentally preparing themselves for the journey they're about to embark on. We see Teddy and Dan finally taking some time to catch up, swapping stories and talking the night away. Finally, we see Ray and Wesley. Though they're sleeping, their minds are anything but quiet. Wesley wakes up in a very familiar place. He's back in Broad Hollow, working in the factory. He's made plans to rob the place tonight. Him and five others wait until close and make their way inside. They head straight for the main terminal to extract the entire line of the mill's credits. They hack into the terminal, but as the others start to get their cut, the owner's jacket catches Wesley's eye. He walks over and tries it on. After the other five men get their 25,000 credits, the terminal locks, and Wesley is unable to get his cut. Just then, he's blindsided by Sergeant Miles, a police officer hell-bent on destroying his life. Sergeant Miles tells his subordinates to leave the room, and then he beats Wesley, near-unconscious but then tells him that if he leaves Broad Hollow and never returns, he'll let him go. As he tries to interrogate Wesley to find out who he's working with, Wesley tells Sergeant Miles, I'm working with Grabbin', Grabbin' these nuts. Faye awakes to the sound of a gunshot, feeling the warm liquid flowing down her face, and looking up to the stream of blood, she sees that she is in opulence being carried by her brother. She watches as he kicks a door open and screams for help, and then everything goes black. As everyone awakes in their teepees, they are barely rested but ready for the journey ahead. Teshuka approaches to let them know that their wagons are pulled around to the opening and were ready to go. They decide to leave Dan and Tilly behind with the kids. And with much protest from Tilly, Buffet gives her one of the books of far speech so they can keep in touch. And after some slight protests from Dan, Wesley walks over and gives him a kiss on the cheek, telling him that he wants Dan to stay safe. Blushing, Dan stands down. The rest of the caravan say their goodbyes and walk towards the opening. And as they reach it, a free stag comes riding in on a horse, screaming that the worm is on a fast track to Peril. Tashuka calms him by letting him know that the party is leaving to handle it, referring to them as, quote, the ones. And three days later, they arrive in Peril, where Ray spent majority of his childhood and early adult years. The free stags decide to stay outside of town, as they are not exactly welcome inside. The caravan ride in and meet Ruby Copeland, the mayor, who knows that they've killed Ewing and is glad for it, so she won't turn them in. She even offers them a place to stay, even though there's already another caravan in town. They also recognize her as the woman who stormed out of Ewing's office back in Broad Hollow. Everyone decides to go to the bar, except for Faye, who decides to go for a stroll with her orb. In the bar, everyone is swapping stories from times gone by, except for Ray and Wesley, who are failing to gain the affection of the young lady. She ends up slapping Wesley and storming out, and Teddy decides to follow in suit. Fay walks through the outskirts of town as her orb begins to glow, and digging through the sand, she finds an old arrowhead, which has a very faint source of magic on it. She then approaches the three free stags to ask them if they can fashion the arrowhead into an actual arrow, to which they agree. And as Faye reconnects with the group, Ray uses his compass to locate the direction of the sandworm. As Teddy comes back, buckling his pants, they set to slay the monster. They meet back with Hana, Willu, and Tua, and set out in the direction of the compass. And as they ride out, the ground begins to shake, as the beast springs out of the ground once again, towering above them. Ray, Ernest, Harvey, and Hana take to the left side, as Wesley, Teddy, Willu, and Tua take the right, attempting to pincer the beast while leaving Faye in the middle alone. Faye fires the arrow into the sandworm, dealing a powerful punch of magical force. And the party begins firing upon the monster relentlessly, One after the other, bullets are flying into the beast's mouth, as Wesley fires two bullets covered in flashbang at the beast, staggering it. Faye attempts to shoot a fireball at the worm, which swallows it, and then it begins to breathe fire. She then tries to extinguish it with the water, but to no avail. Then she turns her attention and starts throwing knives at its children. Bullet after bullet, the party fights gallantly. One of the children hits Wesley, knocking him off his feet and grabbing his arm. One attaches to Fay's leg, and the worm attempts to shoot a fireball into Ernest and Harvey's direction. Ray instinctively runs in the way, and his gauntlet extends out into his shield, protecting him from the brunt of the blow. He protects Ernest, but Harvey isn't quite so lucky. As the fireball hits the ground in front of him, the shockwave from the impact sends Harvey flying back, and he hits a rock, busting his head open. Faye gets hit by the worm's tail, and she also flies back, landing headfirst and knocking her out. After the other two children are knocked back and latch onto the big worm, resupplying her life, the worm lands on top of Wheeloo, consuming him. Faye, coming to, tries to use magic to hold the beast in place, but loses control and ends up growing a beard instead. The party continues to fight to their wit's end, and Wesley, almost unable to stand, showers the beast with his hunting rifle. Ray takes shot after shot with his assault rifle, and Faye, after getting some good hits, gets pummeled into the ground. In a last-ditch effort... Wesley jumps onto the worm's back, and Ray uses the of binding to hold it in place. Faye sits back up, and fires a shot directly into the beast's mouth, killing it. She immediately takes off running for help, and Ray begins slowly but surely cutting through the sandworm's stab-resistant skin, and begins to take a portion of it. It is during this that Wilu ends up kicking his way out of the beast's mouth, and his foot completely gone from the monster's radioactive and acidic saliva. Ray, Ernest, and Teddy then help load everyone up onto wagons and rush them back into town. Faye arrives back at Peril and wakes up the mayor asking her for help where they go to wake up the doctor. She then takes Faye in to get seen as the rest of the party pulls up, badly blighted and beaten. The doctor rings a bell as everyone in Peril wakes up and begins to make their way towards the doctor's house, ready to help. And as the party begins to fade off, Faye uses her last bit of strength to write to Tilly in the Book of far speech, letting her know that the job was done. Woo! End of arc one. You guys did it!
1: And I grew a beard in the process!
0: Yeah, and you were, were very, very adamant about shaving it off before you met her. Yeah, we did it! <laughs> I
1: was very adamant about shaving it off.
0: And that leads us to session five. Ray awakes to find everyone is still asleep and notices that Ernest is missing. He finds Ernest in the chapel praying, and they have a long discussion about their religious pasts, as well as their shared feelings about feeling out of place. After a while, they head back to the hospital and share some whiskey as everyone begins to rouse, except for Wheelu. Ernest tells everyone how proud he is of them, and as the people of Peril begin to wake up and crowd towards the hospital, Ruby Copeland walks in with the doctor and asks them to explain what is going on. With some difficulty and some failed gaslighting, Faye explains everything, and as Ruby is about to explain to the people that they are still safe, Wesley is trying to scream to everyone about how the end is near. Faye magically mutes him, as Ray uses the rope of binding to subdue him. Ruby asks everyone to come to the office, and she explains to them that they cannot tell anyone about what happened, especially the cities in the east, as it would cause mass panic among the people, and the PK would swarm in. As they're walking in, Ray sees his best friend's mother, Betty, who isn't doing well. After she lost Tommy, she decided to use her money for her cancer pills to help other people get the medication they needed. And after a heartfelt conversation, she leaves Ray with a smile. The party begins to eat as Wesley walks over to Harvey and kisses him on his bandaged head, which makes him smile. And then there's a knock at the door, and as they answer, they find out that it's Tilly, Dan, Millie, and Oliver. Tilly explains that they left not too long after the party did. They left with a free stag search party to make sure that everyone was okay. And after they have finished eating, Faye brings everyone to Astrid, who said she'd be waiting outside of Peril. After a little searching, Faye spots the treasure trove and starts to make her way over there. Soon she finds out that only her and Ray are able to see it. And after some convincing, she leads everyone through the front door, to which most of them are flabbergasted. Astrid sits them down at a table and starts to explain all of the details that she has yet to fill in. She explains that she is from the world that is beyond the Rift, and she was sent here with a group of others to find out if the world should be destroyed. She explains that they told them that this world was not beyond redemption, but then the fall happened, and some of the higher-ups decided that Earth was impure and it should be destroyed. And they've been fighting for over 200 years to get this portal open. She also explained that there are different species that live in her world. Some are intellectual, and some are primal. And though she was born on the other side of the Rift, she considers the Earth to be her home. Her group has been reviewing this world for over a millennium, and this isn't the first time the higher have tried to destroy it. The species of her world are what we know as cryptids, and she is a very well-known one, introducing herself as the Mothman, and that she has the ability to see dozens of concurrent possible futures in advance, some seconds, other years. She then looks at Rey's monster compass and tells him that she will look for a way to upgrade it, and she also hands Faye a stone sword owned by Pocahontas and tells her to have it. The sword has a key inside of the hilt, and if she uses the key on any door, it will lead her into the treasure trove, so long as she has the ability to harness magic. She also tells Faye that she will look into the moth that she was chosen by, and gracefully throws them out the door. Then the party, after meeting a very humbled ranch hand, retrieves their horses and wagons, and Faye receives a saddle from Ruby, who also gives the party 250 credits. Ruby also informs them that Wilu and the other Freestags can stay until he is healed, and are always welcomed back. The caravan, reunited, headed for the skids for the drop-off. On the way there, as they were settling in for the night, they were attacked by a group of four bandits, to which they destroyed the leader and then threatened to kill the rest if they didn't give them any useful information. The bandits gave them the directions to a pirate-themed VIP strip club and how to get-in, to which Wesley, and reluctantly Ray, lets them go. The party arrives in the skids where they meet the foreman, Harold, who welcomes them in and makes sure that everyone is okay. And then he asks to speak with Ernest while the rest of the party explores the town. Faye decides to go to the clothing store with Tilly to get a new outfit, and then go to the tavern. Wesley and Harvey go to the restaurant, and Ray goes to the weaponsmith. At the tavern, Faye and Tilly talk about how Tilly was forced to leave opulence after a surgery gone wrong, though it wasn't her fault. At the weaponsmith, Ray asks if the shop owner can fashion the sandworm skin into a vest, and a hunting knife, which he got from Chabuka, to his rifle as a sort of bayonet. She agrees, and Ray negotiates a discount, to which she'll give him one if he shows her a good time. Ray obliges, and she takes him into the back, where she has a sex dungeon. When they're done, Ray leaves with a considerable amount of damage to his still-healing body, especially to his penal area. He finds Faye and Tilly, and asks them to help him fix his dick. And after some reservations, Faye agrees to heal him with magic, and tries, but fails, and instead a magic clone of herself appears, which will follow her commands. She tells the clone to fix Rey, to which it takes him around back and heals him, but it shrinks to almost a non-existent size. He tries to choke it out, to which it tries to cast mental dominion on him. He then uses the rope of binding to tie it up and carries it into the bar. And he has Fay to help again, to which he does multiple times, and at one point turning into a cow, distressing the bartender who did not see the original transformation, and another growing his pubic hair nine inches. And then finally growing his dick five inches, which results in him also getting a magical familiar in the shape of a crow. When Ray asks it to find him treasure, it scurries off into the sky, later bringing back a glass eye. At the restaurant, Harvey and Wesley both order, and Wesley pays for both of them, which makes Harvey smile. The party heads to the caravan cabin to settle down for the night. Then they hear a whistling sound, and after looking out the window, they spot a child walking down the street outside of town. Ray and Wesley follow behind the child while Faye watches through the window. The child walks to a small clearing of trees, and then a giant owl grabs the kid and carries him into the air. Ray throws his rope of binding, to which the owl falls to the ground, dropping the child and letting out a magical screech that breaks it free. Faye tries to hold it in place, but fails, and the owl shoots towards Wesley. She then runs and pulls the child out of the way, and Wesley grabs a gram of flashbang out of his pocket and throws it at the owl, sending it careening into the sky. Ray then runs for the rope, but trips and falls, and the owl flies away. Then it emerges and flies overhead, dropping a rock onto Faye, to which Ray pushes her out of the way, and the rock crashes safely to the ground. As the owl flies away, the child begins to rouse, as if he's been asleep the entire time. And after some talks of forced adoption, Faye decides to put him on her horse and take him home, to which he thanks her and closes the door. After this, Faye heads to the treasure trove with Millie and Oliver and asks Astrid to take care of them for a little while, explaining the situation that just unfolded. Astrid, after hearing it, pulls out an old book off one of the shelves and explains to her that it sounds like a Tata a an owl-woman hybrid monster from Native American folklore. Astrid explains that the Tata Klea lures children into the woods with sweet whistling, then swoops down, grabbing them and taking them back to their nest to feed on them. And she agrees to watch the kids for a short time as Faye thanks her and leaves. As she walks through the door of the treasure trove, she walks out of the front door of the caravan cabin. And at this point, the noise had woken everybody in the cabin up, so Faye walks over to the group and begins to explain what just happened and what she learned from Astrid. Hey guys, just wanted to say that there isn't much commentary from the players from here on out uh, because of the fact that one, it was really late at night, and two, they were trying to remember things and kind of relearn their characters as time goes along while Charles was also learning his character for the first time. So it was a big kind of It is mainly just me talking, so instead of doing that, I'm going to just play through the rest of the recap as is. So let's hop into session six. Night falls over the skids as rain begins to pour, and as most go home to rest, some decide to get a drink. But as these hardworking men enter the tavern, they see an unusual face. Sitting at the bar, dressed in clothes way too clean for a miner, is one Charles North, The bartender asks him where he's from, but being clearly dismissive, he stops questioning. Another patron, however, continues to badger him, upset at a new face who won't talk sitting at the same bar as him. He tells him to explain himself or be ready for a fight. And as Charles readies his fists, two bouncers walk up, grabbing him by the shoulders and toss him into the muddy street. As Charles lays on his back, drunk and confused, he spots an owl fly overhead, standing up and taking a look around. He also finds a group of people standing just down the street. As he approaches and introduces himself, the group introduce themselves as Fay, Ray, and Wesley. Noticing his drunken state and clearly having a rough night, they extend him an invitation to spend the night in the cabin. Day breaks as everyone hops out of their bunks and gets dressed. Ernest gathers everyone around as Charles continues to sleep off his night, and tells everyone that while they want to kill the beast, to do it, they'll need credits. And he convinces the party to go ahead and leave for Jericho, because it will be a big payday and after Charles wakes up they begin to ask him questions and they quickly realize that Charles doesn't remember anything besides his name and that he is a very suited up wagon. He can't recall any memories other than last night. Ernest, being completely willing to bring another misfit on board, asks him three simple questions. Can you shoot a gun? Can you hit your target at least sometimes? And do you have a home? And with his answers Charles becomes the newest member of the Renegades. On their way to pick up their load of medals Ray stops in at the weaponsmith to find the shopkeeper and her husband talking. She tells her husband that Ray was the man she mentioned last night, and the man's face instantly turns pale, and he sheepishly walks out the door. Ray picks up his new sandworm vest, and after a promise for a round two, walked back to the caravan and continued for the pickup. They picked up a load of metal rods and beams, as well as a copper statue of a butterfly, and then they hit the trail for Jericho. Deciding to avoid broad hollow for resupply, the party is attacked by a group of wolves, and after a hard fight... The party wins, and Ray decides to take a smaller wolf, the runt of the group, with him, affectionately naming it Wishbone. And as the party approaches Jericho, they can't help but notice the giant dam towering over. The dam serves as a filtration system, but also as a power supply for the city. And as they ride through the streets of well-kempt houses and brick-laden roads, they finally reach the capitol building and meet the mayor, Perry Caldwell. Perry tells them that he's been talking with Moses, Ruby, and Harold, and they all confirm that the renegades could be trusted. And so he informs the party that he knows the renegades are wanted for questioning but it doesn't matter to him he explains that marjorie benson the mayor of mountain ridge has been raising export prices on pharmaceuticals and medical supplies forcing them to basically abandon their sick and wounded for dead he had also sent spies into mountain ridge and found out that the so-called self-sustaining city was on the verge of collapse raising exports is her plan to pay for the supplies mountain ridge needs to fix their flaws Seeing as this is the case, with Mountain Ridge owning their own line of caravans and with Ewing's speech, he believes that they are also trying to take control of the MC and everything that happens within it. With the new proposal of the PK going MC-wide, they would be able to insert themselves within the city affairs, and anything that the PK deemed wrong could send citizens to trial, and the leaders would not be able to do anything about it. He also tells them of their plan to sabotage it. He wants Nirvana, Peril, the skids, and Applewood to join him in creating a strike, refusing to buy or sell until they lower their taxations. And then calming down from his rant, he asks the party if they think that this is a good plan or not. They unanimously agree that it is, and Perry happily gets ready to finalize the details. He also invites them to the town square later that night for a big commemorative speech. Before then, the party decides to explore the town. Everyone decides to go to the antique store together, which is called the Ironclad Expedition. They all decide to buy relics of the past. Ray buys a couple of old handheld consoles and a couple of games for the kids. Faye buys an extra-long, functioning frobby that she wore as a scarf, while Wesley buys a VHS copy of Shrek 2 in an amalgamation of cords. Afterwards, Wesley and Ray head to the Wet Whistle, a tavern, to find Tom Owens, the owner of the Shirt Club. They find the man, nicknamed the Whore's Whisperer, and bargain a hefty price for access into the club. They meet back in Town Square as it shuts down for the night and everyone crowds around them. Perry gives a very long speech about the tyrannical reign of Marjorie Benson and his plan to combat it, unveiling the butterfly statue and dedicating it to those who lost their lives due to the lack of medication. And as the crowd cheers, Ray notices a man in a black hood turn and disappear into an alley. He follows suit, and as he rounds a corner, the man rides off on a horse. Looking around, Ray finds a folded up piece of paper on the ground, a report sheet of some kind, and at the bottom it reads, It's time to initiate Operation Blackout. After the crowd disperses, Ray brings the paper to the mayor and explains what he saw, and Perry tells him that he will look into it and heads to his office. As the party decides to settle in for the night, Ernest calls everyone out, and he tells them that he wants to make sure that everyone knows to stick together and fight for the good. Then everyone goes to sleep. Just like before, though, Wesley wakes up and begins to walk outside to the back of the cabin, completely against his will. As he rounds the corner, Madeline is there to greet him and asks him what he knows. Before he can even think, he opens his mouth and begins to speak, telling her everything that he's learned about Faye. And then, just like before, he wakes up in bed, completely oblivious. Faye wakes up in a hospital bed, unable to see out of one eye, and sitting next to her is her brother Fenris. He tells her that everything is okay, and that she's going to be given a cybernetic eye. He also tells her that he's going to be going out of town for a few days to try and secure them a better life, but he will be back. Wesley is woken up by Ray in the middle of the night, and they immediately decide to go to the strip club. They make their way there and have a great time, seeing Teddies, getting lap dances, and drinking their hearts out until the sun comes up. Making their way back to the cabin as the rest of the caravan is getting ready to leave, Ray and Wesley drunkenly get on their wagons and head to load up. They load up two vats of water and a few crates of seafood and head out for Applewood. They make it to Applewood around sunset, and Ernest decides to unload in the morning. Morning arrives and Ernest finishes his coffee and says, Alright everyone, let's get to unloading. They unload easily and spend the day exploring the town. They head to a feast and everyone in the town comes. They are all eating and drinking together, commemorating the lives lost that day. When all of a sudden, the party starts to feel odd. And one by one, they fall over. As does the rest of the town, succumbing to the poison. Morning arrives, and Ernest finishes his coffee and says, Alright everyone, let's get to unloading. While only Faye realizes that something isn't right. So because of the way that sessions 7 through 9 kind of worked out, the recaps weren't as long as any of the rest of the sessions. So I've kind of grouped them all into just arc two so let's go ahead and get into the second arc Faye realizes that something isn't right almost instantly and as the day ends and the next morning offers the same course of events she realizes no matter how odd it may seem that she's in some sort of time loop slowly but surely she is able to convince wesley ray and charles about what is happening and even though they need to be told again every morning she begins to make it into a sort of routine as they explore the town with this new information, they discover different happenings. A man gets shot down in the bar. A logging accident goes wrong, killing two men. A woman needing an emergency C-section with a doctor who's passed out drunk. And a bandit raid that kills half the town. But they start to notice that every time something happens, no matter how many funerals there are throughout the day, they wake up in the morning and march towards death once more, and falling behind watching these events as a young girl. After seeing her multiple times, they come to the conclusion that she also knows that she is in a time loop. Upon questioning the girl, she denies knowing anything about it and runs off. Wesley, walking around town square, notices a girl sitting in the window of the clock tower in the mayor's office. He, Ray, and Faye enter the office, but notice that the mayor isn't there, so they decide to snoop around. And upon breaking a magically sealed lock, they find a small girl, maybe five or six in stature, but has the body and face of a 70-year-old with web-light strings shooting out of her fingertips, tangled in the mechanisms of the clock tower. They talk to the girl and quickly learn that her name is Ambrosia, and she created the time loop to help her friend Ellie spend some more time with her dying brother. She also reveals that with every loop, it is taking away her life force little by little. She had no idea that Ellie had been using the time for other things, and also informs the party that Ellie is the only one who knows how to stop the loop. They find Ellie, who is resistant to give any information. When they bring up Ambrosia, she happily tells the party that she's been using her so that she can have fun with no consequences. As the party does some more exploring, they find the bandits were holed up at an old subway station, and in the back of the station was a room with those same web-like strings attaching to a series of clocks along the wall. On the next loop, Ray and Faye work together to create a working translation collar for his new wolf friend. Afterwards, they find Ellie, and Ray uses the rope of binding on her, and after defeating the bandits, drag Ellie over to the hideout. After a very long back and forth over the course of a few loops, Faye, completely done with Ellie's shit, threatens her, saying that she will rip her teeth out one by one if Ellie doesn't tell her how to stop it. Ellie tells her that no matter what Faye does to her, she knows that she will wake up tomorrow perfectly fine. And also tells her that she has already killed herself multiple times just to see what it feels like. But finally giving in, she gives Faye a certain clock combination to put in on the wall. There's a bright flash of light and everything goes dark. And we find Ray, Faye, Wesley, Ernest, and Charles wake up. But things are different. There's no buildings in sight, and there's a road that looks almost pristine compared to what they're used to. As they come to their senses, they realize that their weapons are gone, and just then they see a machine flying towards them, something they'd only seen rusted underneath the sands of the wastes. It lets out a mechanical screech as it goes straight past them, fading into the distance. As they look to each other, confused and frightened, another metal contraption stops next to them. Different from the first and much larger, looking more like a wagon, A man appears behind a thin piece of glass, asking them if they're lost. He then offers them a ride and introduces himself as Bill. Faye gets in next to Bill, while the other four pile in the back, and Bill asks them where they were coming from, and as they tell him Applewood, he seems confused. He tells them that they are in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and he always offers free rides to veterans, gesturing to their cybernetics. He tells them that he'll take them into town, and offers Faye a map. Looking over the map, it reads, Road Trip America, Arizona and New Mexico State Maps. 2012 edition. Riding through the desert with the windows down, the air is cooler than anything they've ever felt, even during winter on the wastes. After a while, the city comes over the horizon. Large, colorful houses dwarfed by massive skyscrapers. Many of these metal contraptions fly past, then stopping at lights that give off a red hue and moving again when the green light appears. Everything feels so organized, yet wrong. Bill stops the metal wagon and tells them that they are at the Santa Fe Visitor Center, and they'll answer any questions that they may have. They exit as Bill takes the map from Faye and writes a series of numbers, telling them that if they need to go anywhere in town to give him a call and then he drives away. Ernest asks everyone to keep the assassinations and sabotage to a minimum until they figure out the plan. And after talking to the visitor center receptionist and learning how to use a payphone, they follow the map towards an empty grass patch to sit and talk. Looking over the map, Ernest informs them that before he moved to the MC, he used to live nearby and he pointed them to a free stag camp in the Gila National Forest. Then they hear a voice from behind them, calling Fay by name. And they turn around to see an overweight man dressed in dirty clothes and a crumpled fedora, with a short beard that extends down his neck and a shirt with a colorful girl in an intimate pose on it. He tells them that he loves their cosplays and asks them if they're going to the con, to which he gives them the details. Confused, Fay tells him to hit the road, and reluctantly he leaves. They calculate that it will be a four-day walk to Gila National Forest to maybe find someone who can help. And as they walk, they see that everything for sale has a different symbol than what they're used to, deducing that the currency must be different than credits. Ray finds himself in the mart of walls, though they do not sell walls. They do, however, sell guns. And seeing that Ray had no funds, naturally, he tried to steal one. It didn't quite work out for him, and quickly he escapes out the door and down the street. Faye, Wesley, and Charles, on the other hand, find themselves at the House of Waffles and enjoy a nice meal together. They approach a place with tons of huge metal wagons sitting around, and they walk inside and are able to get a free shower, and as everyone else is showering, a man approaches Wesley and asks him if he can deliver a package for him, and after Wesley asks for slush, the guy offers him some weed seeds. He agrees, and the guy gives him an address. Using the map to find the address, he delivers the package and is handed an envelope of money. He brought the envelope back to the man and got a small amount of, as the guy called it, dollars and five weed seeds. Then as everyone finishes their shower and they start to walk through the town, they pass by shop after shop and restaurant after restaurant. And then something catches Faye's eye. A small shop in the shape of a treasure chest, named, promptly, the Treasure Trove. Walking in, instead of trinkets and artifacts, they see disgusting sights. A two-headed sheep encapsulated in a jar of blue liquid. A picture of a woman with three eyes wooden bowls in the shape of a head, a skull that is way longer than it should be, and in the back is a giant mural on the wall depicting a destroyed bridge and the Mothman. Standing in front of the mural and behind a counter is Astrid Deville, and after a long and taxing talk with Astrid, they convince her that they are in fact from the wrong time period. Astrid writes them a spell that will propel them back into their time, but they need someone who is able to harness magic. She marks their map and tells them to head to the Alamo Navajo Reserve and Chibola National Forest and ask for Ashki. She also tells them how to summon one of the metal wagons, which she calls a taxi. They use the summoning device, and a few minutes later, the taxi pulls up. A scrawny man in his mid-twenties, inebriated and very friendly, greets them and introduces himself as Spike. The party decide to try and head to the con mentioned by the man. They arrive and want to go get some food from something called a maid cafe, A place where scantily dressed waitresses bring you your food. The man finds them sitting at the cafe and approaches, being very rude and indecent to the waitresses. They politely ask him to stop, and when he refuses, saying that they are, quote, supposed to serve him, Ray grabs him by the fingers and breaks all four of them. Leaving the cafe, they find a sign-up sheet for something called a cosplay competition. Not being once to shy away, they decide to enter. They take the stage, deciding to dance as the group before them did, and absolutely fail, flopping around like fish, and yet somehow winning second place. Everyone agrees that that is not good enough, and so they mug the first place winners and steal their dollars. After this, they decide not to push their luck and head back out where the taxi is still waiting for them, and he takes them to the reserve and waits outside. They approach the house that Astrid marked and asks for Ashki, and an older woman opens the door. Hearing the urgency in their voices, she ushers them in to find an old man hooked up to various machines that are beeping. He wakes, and they explain that Astrid sent them. He tells them that he cannot take them to where they need to go, but he will put it on the map for them. He tells them that they need to go to the hot springs in the mountains, as well as instructing the woman to hand them a pouch with pink dust in it. Ashki tells them that the dust will direct them to the nearest source of magic, but to use it wisely as there isn't much left. He also informs them that the spot is of historical significance and the guards patrol there all night long. They thank Ashby and the others for their help and walk out as Wesley convinces Spike, the taxi driver who was clearly high, to come with them. He instantly rushes off and comes back a little while later with his pet dog and a duffel bag of drugs. They load up and head to the mountains. Waiting until nightfall, they sneak past the guards and use the dust to make it into the cavern. But in doing so, get caught by a camera and it sets off an alarm. Quickly, they rush to the hot springs, and Faye can feel the magic flowing through her. She begins to draw the sigils in the ground, just as written, and everyone holds hands and begins to chant as they hear the sirens in the distance. They start to glow a vibrant blue. Spike starting to freak out, but he ends up going along with it, thinking it to be a very cool trip. And then, as they hear someone say, hands in the air, everything goes black. Everyone wakes up, feeling the cold concrete on their face. They stand up to find that they are back in the bandit hideout, and as they look around, they see that the clocks and string are gone. Running into town, Tilly spots them and runs over to Faye, wrapping her in a big hug and telling her that she was worried about her. They bring Tilly and Ernest with them as they walk into the mayor's office. Faye and Ray discuss killing Ellie, and as they enter, they find Ambrosia looking healthier. She thanks them for stopping the loop and tells them that she overheard their conversation and asked them not to kill her. She gestures to the window, and they see a group of people standing around. Ambrosia informs them that her brother did not survive the night, and she is suffering enough. Just then, the party hears a loud click, turning around to find Ellie standing there with an assault rifle pointed at them, telling them that they killed her brother. She points the gun at Faye and asks her what right she has to break the deal she had with Ambrosia. In his rage turns to sadness, she falls to her knees and begins to cry as Ambrosia begins to yell, telling her that she is a selfish, wicked girl and never wants to see her again. Ellie leaves and Ambrosia then starts to cry as well, telling the group that she wants to go home. Faye uses her key on the attic door, and they enter the treasure trove. She explains the situation to Astrid, who immediately begins to work on opening a portal. And as she opens it, Ambrosia hands Wesley a small pink crystal as a thank you for protecting her, and tells him that if he ever needs her, she will be there as soon as she's feeling better. Astrid asks everyone to stand around in a circle, chanting as the room fills with a pink light. The portal opens, and Ambrosia begins to float into it, and then from the other side comes an unnatural scream, and a hand that comes through and grabs her. Working together, they get the hand off of her and pull her back through as Asher closes the portal. She explains to Ambrosia that the destination she saw on the other side was nothing like Ambrosia had described. It was burned and lifeless, saying that someone must be sabotaging her spell from the other side. Asher then asks Ernest and Faye to step into her office for a second. Stepping in, she explains that Ambrosia is a time warper and a young one. She's only 200 years old, when the lifespan of a time warper is around two millennia. She also explains that whoever sabotaged the portal had to be someone of greater strength, either a demigod, an oni, or a god itself. The only silver lining is that they didn't come through, meaning they wanted to keep someone out. She explains that Ambrosia cannot stay with her because the time, magic, and future-seeking magic does not mix very well, and she will have to stay with the party. Asher tells him that in the meantime, she will be happy to keep the other kids, as she is enjoying learning about their games as much as they are. They depart and walk out of the attic to find Mayor Clifford walking in. They explain that they were looking for him and ask him to contact the mayor of Jericho about the sanctions. Everyone heads back to the cabin for the night, Ambrosia sharing a bed with Fay. They wake up in the morning and notice that Spike is still there, smoking pot outside, very confused. Wesley has a very heartfelt conversation and ensures him that it wasn't a trip, but tells him that no one will be able to stop him from smoking, and instantly he perks up. Everyone saddles up and heads to the loading area with two new friends and a load of fresh fruit and vegetables. And so they ride out for Peril. And this is where our real story begins. And that is it for the recap. I really hope you guys did enjoy it. I know it's a little weird and it might have been a little hard to follow along. But any of the key story points, as I said in the beginning, will be uh, reiterated at the start of the uh, next session, episode one. Um, and another thing that I just wanted to add, now the story is fully up to where we are now the reason why um we said at the beginning that it is going to be cameron's first ever like session with us but charles is already in the story is because uh we had another player who was playing along with us scheduling things like that didn't work out um so cameron graciously stepped forward to take over the role and make the character his own And I think you guys are really going to enjoy the way that everyone plays their characters, the chaos, the absolute funny moments. It's going to be a blast. So I will see you guys for episode one.